Calm down over there, Irene. So you go out to a new restaurant, you look on the menu, special of the day is noodles, tomatoes, garlic, onion, beef, and basil. That's what you read. What are you going to get? Spaghetti, just not just spaghetti. Could be lasagna, could be uh, a bouillabaisse, meat sauce, whatever, I don't know. But some people think the Bible is put together like this, meaning that, uh, you know, say you ordered this and they came out with a box of pasta, a tomato, a lump of basil, and they just threw it all on a plate for you. Um, Some people think, you know, the Bible is just kind of hodgepodge thrown together. Is there a structure to the scripture? And it turns out that there is. First, we turn to architecture. You cannot know a structure just by knowing what its components are. A building, any, like a nice one, you know, usually. Um, How do the components of a building interact with one another? Uh, When they do in a good way, it's done for a purpose. It's a pleasure to our eyes or a pleasure to our senses. And it's done in a particular way that's called an ordering principle. And so how things in a building are ordered together, not just the fact that it stands up and it covers you and protects you from the elements, but it's actually composed in a certain way. And it's called an ordering principle. The oldest and most frequently used ordering principle is symmetry. You have a central line upon which objects, angles, whatever, are pointing towards that axis. And this was a favorite of the Greeks and the Romans. So when you look at symmetry, what are your eyes drawn to in that, it's not really a circle, it's more of an oval, but it's still symmetrical. The line goes down the middle. Your eyes are drawn to the center. And so for instance, in a Greek structure, uh, your eyes are drawn to the center. There's a certain number of columns. They're spaced evenly apart, even though if they weren't spaced evenly apart, it would still hold the structure up, but they're put in a certain place for a certain reason. Um, this, these are my, some of my favorite. This is a crypt. Uh, and a crypt has, it, it's symmetrical. Your eyes are drawn to the center. And uh, a famous crypt, I was in this crypt. Actually, me and the family were in this crypt, a bunch of people. Uh, anybody know where this is? No? Uh, Capitol building. I wouldn't have known either. Uh, But we did a tour of the Capitol building, and that is directly in the center of the Capitol building. It's also called the crypt. It's directly underneath the the rotunda, which is where George Washington is up in the ceiling looking like a god himself, if you've ever been there and seen this. Anyway, uh, this was in a lot of the uh, January 6th footage, guys roaming around in here, that's where it became. Anyway... This is completely symmetrical. There's 40 columns, and they all point to a middle. That, there's a star on the floor in the middle, and from that, that's the center of the entire capital complex is right at that point. Uh, this is done to draw your eyes. This is done to make you feel good. You know, and, and in fact, if it's like for me especially, this um, that that kind of architecture just it just jazzes me. 
So what are you feeling? It's an emotion. You want to go there. It's a passion, maybe. And the same thing is done in literature. Hebrew poetry, for instance, uses parallelism. One line, the two lines are parallel, and there's various forms of this parallelism that makes for various nuances. You may, in the second line, increase the intensity. Uh, You may uh, progress a storyline as you are increasing intensity. You may be describing what happened in the previous line with uh, different um, uh, synonyms. And... What we're going to see in our study of the Gospel of Matthew is a chiasm. And a chiasm is a structure that is in literature that highlights a central principle. Uh, So, for instance, old King Cole was a merry old soul. A merry old soul was he. That's a chiasm. So you've got old King Cole on the outside and you've got merry old soul in the middle. When you say that, what are you thinking of is, well, he's a merry old soul. Uh, Today we'll see that the Gospel of Matthew itself, the entire Gospel, is a chiasm. And, therefore, it's got a central point. The the chiasm points to, like the structures you saw there, that are a, a central aspect. Now, Matthew could have just written out the central aspect. But everything around that central aspect supports it. And this helps us to understand the purpose that Matthew is after. Why is it that the Gospels are different? Why aren't they mirror images of each other? Why do they have similarities in some parts and differences in others? And it's because every Gospel writer is after a certain purpose. Every Gospel writer is is writing to present a certain argument. And Matthew's argument is unique to the other four. And so that's what we're going to look at. When we see this, we'll look at the the chiasm today. And this will help us as we go through this gospel to keep ourselves in the center. Because when you take passages out of context, you lose the truth of them. And in fact, you could look at the gospel of Matthew as a life story of Christ, which it is, and miss the reason why that life story is given. And, uh, and we're not going to do that. So what is Matthew's central argument? That's what we're going to see. Uh, well, we'll start to see it today and uh, continuing on. Oh, God, who knows how long. So we'll see. I, I, my plan or you know, I have plans, but my plans are not the Lord's plans. So I'm going to follow his uh, we, as far as announcements are concerned, uh, we had a Bible study on Psalm 19. Um, we had tentative plans to uh, post the video of that, uh, and the video didn't come out hardly at all. And that was operator error, uh, which I was the operator. So, um, yeah, we have tentative plans to do those kinds of Bible studies once a month. Was there, We talked about that. So I'll keep you posted on that, and I'll work on my video skills. Uh, Zoom meetings are now on Mondays, not Fridays. On Mondays, same time, 4 p.m. if you want to join us. Uh, There are no classes coming. uh, Thanksgiving, there won't be a class, obviously. But I'm going to take that week off. So there won't be any classes on November 21st and 22nd, Tuesday and Wednesday, because Joe needs a break. And... uh, and a prayer list. We have a the prayer list 
by text. The people are on this list, this text list. This is working out great. So if you need anything prayed for, uh, let either me know. You can email the church through the website, and that will go out to those who pray. And um, it's, it's working out very well. It, um, yeah. So if you need prayer, let us know. And finally, this is a final pl- a plug for this coming series, Read the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I know it's long, but try and get through it as many times as you can. Uh, one of the things that's going to really help you understand this gospel is to read it. Read it on your own as many times through as you can before, before it's over. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for the opportunity we have to be together and to learn his word. Let's be grateful and ready to learn today as we um, bow ourselves in humility before our Father. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone have provided for us our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for the things that we're going to see in this wonderful gospel that you've given us, that you've opened up the New Testament with, showing us our Lord, our King, our Messiah, the Messiah and King and Savior of the world, and to focus on Him, Father, and see in Him our lives, to see in Him our kingdom. And may it come, Father, but until the time that it does come to earth, we ask that you guide us as your children and heirs to behave and live and to enjoy the kingdom that you have given us and the king, who both of which are ours forever. We thank you so much, Father, for all you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All rise, please.
All right, so we'll be looking at a chiasm. First, we have to understand what a chiasm is. Uh, chiasm is a word that comes from, it's based on the Greek letter chi, which is, <coughs> it looks like Rx, but it's their CH. Uh, it always has a hard sound in their language. So it's a chi. Uh, as you can see, the shape of the chi is, you know, it goes inward and then outward, and there's a center point. So a simple chiasm would be A, B, C, B, A. This is B prime and A prime. Uh, the Bs go together. The As go together in some kind of parallel form. They're not perfectly parallel. Uh, they might have similar words. They might deal with similar ideas. But this is built around the center idea, which is C. So this is how, like one side of the X, A, B build up to C, and then it goes back out. And this is a very common, there's hundreds of them in the scripture. Very, very common structure. Um, now, you don't have to do this. This is the beauty of it. Just like when you build a building, even just as long as it stands up and protects you from the elements, it's good. You know, you could have a, <clears throat> a sheet metal hut in a poor village in India that protects you from the elements. Or, you know, you can have something like the Taj Mahal. Uh, you know, people visit one, they don't visit the other for various reasons. But it, it draw, there's something that this is built so that it draws your idea to the center and actually lets you see. As you see the center, then you see how the things that are around it support the center. So to look at a, go to, Matt, uh, sorry, Romans 5, please. Look at Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 is such an important passage. I just dumped water. That's good. Thank you. There we go. Uh, Romans 5.12, such an amazing passage uh, in this section of 5 to 21, which is one of the key, if not the key, paragraph in the book of Romans, which is a key book in the Word of God. And <clears throat> at the start of this, so let's read it first. Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so, you know, you can see that. You might read through it. Uh, your your eyes of your heart go to the central theme without even knowing it's a chiasm. But when you look at it, and I have the chiasm on the board, sin entered into the world, and then in the middle are actually two complementary phrases. So in this case, the center is two lines. So this would be A, B, B, A. So, <coughs> sorry, in the first line, you have uh, sin enters the world, so you have sin here on the outside, sin here on the outside. Uh, you also have world, which is synonymous with all. And so the outsides are parallel. And then on the inside is death. And death here becomes like a tomb, right? a tomb that's surrounded by sin. And that's when I looked at this, I was like, it looks like, you know, you're, you're stuck in a tomb, aren't you? <clears throat> the reason for our death is the support of the tomb, which is our sin. 
But all of us sin, right? There's no escape here. It's very clear. The whole world, all, actually you have all mentioned twice, and you have the whole, and you have the world once. You have all in line, uh, the bottom outside, and then the first one is, uh, sorry, all. I'm looking for all here. All men in the middle, and <clears throat> the passage there begins. This, this chiasm in the opening of Romans 5, 12 through 21, <coughs> excuse me, relates to an amazing truth that all of us are born in a tomb. Right? What's the central here is the death. Right? All of us are sinners, but what is the result of that? So like, okay, we're all born sinners. So what? You know, what, what does that mean? And you can't escape the meaning here. Death, death. Death, death. <clears throat> Adam sinned, which caused us all to be... So, what if Paul just wrote this as... Look at it this way. Let's say, uh, here's what Paul wrote. Adam sinned and caused us all to be born in sin, and so we were all born dead. It's the same truth, but it doesn't draw us. Like, at least to me, when you look at it this way, that what we see is uh, something that is it draws us. It's poetry in a way, and it draws our attention like a, a fine building, like a building that is made with symmetry and beauty, and that's what this is. It's symmetry and beauty. Of course, if this were the end of the story, it wouldn't be beauty, would it? But you continue on. This is like uh, the opposite of putting up in a rectangular box and living in it. This is symmetry of a beautiful structure. God wants our eyes drawn and our hearts inflamed with the truth of these things. And interestingly enough, on my playlist that I was listening to, I have certain playlists that I listen to and I study. They're usually instrumental stuff. As I was going over this passage, um, Handel's Messiah came up. And I, I love it. I've seen it done live by an orchestra. Just good Lord. You know, everybody, you're supposed to stand up because the old, the old king stood up when he first heard it. Anyway, um, I'm listening to it and I'm like, wait a minute. He keeps singing hallelujah over and over. Is this parallelism? And then I, I went back and I re-listened to it. So you have hallelujah, 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 four. And then hallelujah, which is how many syllables? I had to stop and count them. Hallelujah. There's five. There's five hallelujahs, and the last hallelujah has a five-syllable, right? It draws you. What would be Handel's Messiah without the, uh, you know, it's, he's, he basically wrote a song to Isaiah 9-6, and, uh, you know, it's nothing without the hallelujahs. It draws us. The structure, the chiasm, points the reader to a central section as a significant element. The other parallel parts contribute to that message. As we see in Romans 5.12, the point that is made is death, death through sin, death to all men. It is death and death again caused by sin. And who are the sinners? The world. All. All. It's beautiful. Now, for something more complex. It's not actually more complex, it's just longer. The chiasm of the book of Leviticus. Now, 
for the sake of time, this is in the notes. If you want to go online, you can look at it. But this is recognized by many. Actually, I, I went on a, a site, a Jewish site, not a non-Christian site, and a rabbi was writing a long article about how this Leviticus is a chiasm. In fact, the, the rabbis and Christian scholars recognize the Torah as a chiasm. The Torah has five books, and the middle book is Leviticus. And if you numbers, uh, sorry, Exodus and Numbers are parallel. Genesis and Deuteronomy have many parallels. And right in the middle is Leviticus. And Leviticus itself has a chiasm that points you right to Leviticus 16. And it's supported on either side. You can read it there. You have the Israel drawn near to God in the last chapters. Israel lives with God in 8 through 10. You have the priesthood established. 23 through 25, you have the service of the priesthood. The holiness of the people in terms of eating laws, the holiness of the people in terms of what is holy, what is holy and what is common, and then straight dab in the middle is the Day of Atonement. And when you go read Leviticus 16, it has as its center the offering. In Leviticus 16, it opens up with Aaron, Aaron, I like to call him down. It opens up with Aaron being dressed and cleansed. At the end of Leviticus 16, Aaron is getting undressed. And in the middle is the offering. And in that offering is the line. <clears throat> this is where you have the scape. You have two goats. One is sacrificed and the blood is sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. The other goat is the sins of the people are said over the scapegoat. And the goat is released into the wild. And that is a picture of the fact that God is going to send your sins as far as the east is from the west. And this is right in the middle of the Torah. <coughs> and in the middle of that says this, these offerings are for the impurities of the sons of Israel because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And what happens on the Day of Atonement? All the sins of the people are atoned for. The center. So, Matthew's theme is to prove Jesus as the Messiah and the King and to explain God's kingdom program. And this is his purpose. That's why he's writing the gospel. He is proving. Now, we know that Matthew is writing to Jews. This is very obvious in his gospel that his audience, his intended audience, are Jews. Matthew was writing around 60 A.D., somewhere between 50 and 70, so it's about 30 years after the death of Christ, roughly, that he is writing to Jews to tell them that Jesus of Nazareth is the King of the Jews and that he is the Messiah. Now, if I told, if I was a Jew, telling other Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the King, those Jews would retort, where is his kingdom? All right, you say he's the king. I'm looking around here. It don't look any different here. We all know from the prophets and from the writings that when the Messiah comes, his kingdom is coming with him. It's a utopia. It's a perfect environment, a perfect world in which Israel is the center. Where's the kingdom? And then you see Matthew write on this. 
And that, in fact, and I passed out your Matthew chiasm is uh, passed out to you. You can see what right there in Matthew 13 is the center. The kingdom has been postponed. It's not gone. It's postponed. So when we study this gospel, what we're going to see is our king, why he's our king, and we're, you know, here we are, in, we're living in Matthew 13, the age of the interim. Matthew 13 is about this. The kingdom has been postponed, and while this kingdom is postponed, God is building his church, and that church was a mystery. It wasn't told to anybody. Nobody knew about it in the Old Testament, but now in this interim period, because they rejected their king, he's still coming back, but until he comes back, God has a kingdom program in which he is not making us into a king. No, no, no. He's making us as heirs of the king to be like the king. And you're going to discover who your king is, how to be like him, even though you're not with him. How to actually have joy and impact and an enormous ability, even though the kingdom is in the future. How to live in a world that ain't the kingdom as heirs of the king. Ah, this gives me goosebumps. Matthew is the author. As I said, I could go into that. Uh, There's stacks of books written about either Matthew is the author or he isn't. You'll find he doesn't address himself in the book. He doesn't say this is the gospel according to Matthew. That's a title that you're reading. He didn't write that. But anyway, we're going to bypass all of that. Believe me, if you do, you could do the research yourself, Google it. You'll come to the conclusion that Matthew is the author. He's writing with Jews in mind. And this uh, comes from a commentary that I picked up called Behold the King by Stanley Toussaint. He writes, quote, A non-believing Jew would scoff at any assertion of the Lord Jesus being the Messiah, let alone King. He would say, quote, if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, where is his kingdom? Where is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to Israel, he would ask. After all, the Hebrew scriptures are replete with four views of a utopian age headed by Israel and their Messiah. Therefore, the objector would contend Jesus could not be the Messiah because he did not fulfill Old Testament prophecies promising a kingdom to Israel. And that is why Matthew is writing. He's explaining the answer to that very real objection. It's a good objection. And he's explaining it. So Matthew, writing in 60 AD, roughly, is proving that Jesus is the King Messiah. And again, uh, the the legitimate objection would be, where's the kingdom? This is a legitimate objection. So Matthew explains God's kingdom program as it relates to Israel. He explains that it's postponed. That is the central idea of his gospel. And and prove it through the miracles of Jesus. Matthew has the most Old Testament quotes of all the gospels by far. He quotes and quotes and quotes, which I'm so excited for as we go through this gospel, we're going to get to see a bunch of Old Testament. And how all of it is one big whole revelation 
There's a structure to the Torah. There's a structure to Leviticus. There's a structure to Matthew. There's a structure to the Bible. And we get to figure out that what that structure is because we're heirs of the kingdom. How wonderful to know you're an heir of the kingdom even though the kingdom ain't here and that it's in the future and that there are a lot of people roaming around in our world who are not heirs of the kingdom who don't know anything about it. Some know something about it and say no to it. And you and I, he's, what did he say to us? Matthew 6, you're the, Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. You, you're the light of the world. Be that light. It's the most important thing you can do. And Satan counters this. Distractions and deceptions. You've got to get through those. and Be that light. It's the most important thing you can do. Go to Matthew 21. Matthew clearly shows that Israel rejected their Messiah and His offer of an earthly kingdom. Now this parable of the vineyard owner is in all the synoptic Gospels. There's some things, as we'll see, that are unique to Matthew's Gospel. But you will see why this has to be stated by... The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because synoptic means similar. So they're, they're similar, though not entirely. 34. I know why I'm doing that. Matthew 21, 34. 37, sorry. Matthew 21, 37. So, I don't know. For the sake of time, I decided to skip the first few people they send that they kill. But this is uh, the vineyard owner who sends people to get the product or the profit of his vineyard. He sends servants and they kill them. He sends others and they kill them. And then in verse 37, But afterward he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. And this is Jesus, of course, talking to the religious crowd. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And amazingly, they respond properly. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Amazingly, they answer in the positive. They answer correctly, not just that there should be justice or judgment upon the vine growers, which here are Israel, but that there'll be new, uh, new tenants. So, when Jesus said to them in verse 42, "Did you ever read in the scriptures?" Silly, right? Of course they did. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. A clear prophecy of his rejection, but that he would become the chief cornerstone. Of what? Of the eternal temple, of the eternal kingdom, and of the church. So he says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So the kingdom will be taken away. Matthew's clear. But the kingdom will not be taken away forever. The kingdom is postponed. And this is the important aspect of Matthew's gospel. 
The kingdom was not taken away forever, but postponed. This is extreme importance. And this is the center. This is what is in Matthew 13 and all those parables. So look at Matthew 23, 38. The kingdom is not canceled. Nor is the kingdom given to the church. Like we're heirs of the kingdom. We don't possess it. Uh, The kingdom's not here on earth. It will come at the second coming of Christ. We, again, are heirs. We, we are gifted with many of the assets of the kingdom, the new covenant in his blood. But this kingdom will be given to Israel on earth, literally for a thousand years, to those who are descendants of Abraham, the real Israel, who are believers in Christ. So in Matthew twenty-three thirty-eight, Jesus said, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you from now on you will not see me. Now, if he ended there, then it could be the end for them, right? But he says, until. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what's marvelous about this quote? It's Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was the final psalm of the Hallel. The Hallel was what the Jews sang every Passover from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would sing these. Psalms, 113 to 118. And at the end of this, near the end, almost at the end, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would sing this. And this is said right at Passover. As people know this, this line rings in their ears. But the point is that Jesus is returning. So in the meantime, God inaugurated an entirely new and previously unknown program. It is a kingdom program. It's a program that's progressing forward, and that is the church. In Matthew 13, it's not only the church. It's everything that leads up to the second coming of Christ. And so Matthew is showing us and them, and them first, the Jews that he's writing to, but then blessedly to us that we're part of a mystery age, a mystery age that had not been known in the Old Testament to which we would be these very, you know, and looking at the, the ways of the Old Testament or the write, writings, the prophecies, we're odd, oddballs. We really are. Jews and Gentiles with the blessings of the new covenant spiritually, but none of the physical. Because the blessings of the new covenant are abundant. It, basically, you're rich. Uh, and uh, abundantly so, and that the earth is abundantly so, and that there's it's actually peace on earth. It's utopia in the new covenant. And there ain't no utopia here. It's not even close. I find it funny how many people promise utopia in ways that do not come from God, but come from them and their little tiny itty-bitty intellect, that they're going to provide peace on earth. And it's just ludicrously stupid. Yet, they proclaim it. Yet, they know nothing. And yet, we are in an age where we are blessed spiritually with everything from that kingdom, but none of the physical. Jews and Gentiles, doesn't matter now. This is a crazy age. And you live in it. Now, when people study the Gospels, they tend to fall into two camps. It's two methods. Either you look at the Gospels in terms of theology. 
Right? You look at the Gospels and you see, all right, what doctrines are in the Gospels? And then you compare them with the New Testament and you come up with a theology from the Gospels. The other camp tries to piece together the life of Christ from the Gospels. And what we do there and that other method is we try to harmonize the Gospels and figure out the day-by-day life of Christ. And both of those methods provide um, uh, some important tools. They, they have helped and benefited the church greatly. However, they are not the main brunt of the gospel. Both of these methods are fruitful, finding doctrine, finding the life of Christ, but you fail to grasp the significance of a gospel when you fail to grasp the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of Matthew is not to give us a history of Christ. None of the gospel writers set out to do that. They use the life of Christ to show something. And it's that that we have to know. We have to know the thing that they're trying to show so that when we look at the life of Christ in the gospel, we don't think it is. And this helps us to understand why in some gospels are things included and in other gospels not. Why in some gospels are they writing a narrative here instead of a doctrinal treatise? And all kinds of questions, they, they, get, they get ironed out by knowing what it is that the purpose of the writer. So Matthew reveals that the kingdom is postponed. Uh, all right, there it is. Matthew reveals that while the kingdom is postponed, the kingdom program continues. And Matthew is the only gospel that uses the word church. Matthew 16, 18. It's where he says to Peter, I will make you a foundation of my church. And upon this rock, I will build my church. That's the only place in the Gospels where we find the word. Amazingly so, also Matthew has a huge emphasis on Gentiles. His Gospel is written to Jews to show the Jews that Jesus is King and Messiah and that the kingdom has been postponed. And yet, he talks so much about Gentiles. Only in Matthew do we find the Magi. From the east. These are not Jews, but they come to worship the king. We find the centurion's faith. The healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter. It's in Matthew that we find that Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, way outside of Galilee. And he heals a woman's daughter there who is a Canaanite. She is a Gentile. Only in Matthew do we have the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew, go to all the corners of the earth, the ends of the earth. And baptize them in my name, in the Father of the, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's only in Matthew that he sends them out, sends the disciples out to all nations. And so there's a great emphasis on this expansiveness of what the gospel would do in this age. So a Jew reading Matthew's gospel would say, "Well, you know, why are there so many Gentiles in the church? I thought Israel just got the promises." And Matthew explains that. Why isn't the kingdom here? Matthew explains that. That's actually the center aspect of his gospel. So the primary purpose of the gospel writers is to prove a point. Uh, And then they set forth arguments to prove whatever that point is. And once we figure out what that point is, then we can absolutely know, you know, we don't get lost because... There are many bad doctrines that are made because people go out of context. And that is a source of of false doctrines very often. The life of Jesus is not the 
first priority. <clears throat> now this chiasm, this one that you have in front of you, that's why you can see why I had it printed out because I pretty much knew you wouldn't be able to see that, is that the center part, and we'll look at a little bit of this today before we go, just real quickly. The center part is the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Um, these parallels from A to A prime, B to B prime, and so on, they are there. We will see them as we go through. Uh, some of them are not as clearly parallel as some would like, but in other ones, they're so parallel, it's so obvious. Um, and this leads us to a center point. What is also helpful, now this chiasm is from my professor at Corbin University who wrote a paper on this back in 2005, I think he wrote it. And of course, I asked, I asked him for, you know, stuff that he uh, had on Matthew, and he was like, well, I wrote a paper on it. He's a, he's a very humble guy, believe me, you'd love him. Um, but uh, I was like, yeah, I would love to read your paper. I, lo I just loved it. The, um, the, the central point shows us, you know, here is what Matthew is about. What I was about to say is those who don't believe in the chiasm, because there are some scholars who are like, yeah, that's kind of a stretch, they come up with the same central point. You know, and other scholars are looking at, because, for instance, in Matthew there are five discourses five main discourses of Christ in Matthew. And you can or organize the gospel around those five discourses. And when you do, you come up with the same thing. But this, I, there's another reason I like this. It helps it stay in my mind. It, it, believe me, we'll see this over and over as we go through this. Once you've seen it a few times, you can, you'll start to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The beginning of Matthew is this. The end is this. The middle of Matthew is this. The, the other middle, you know, around the center is this. And you'll remember it. And when you remember it, when you read other passages, that's why I'm going to encourage you to please read this gospel on your own. When you read other passages in Matthew, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I see where this fits into the whole thing. Because believe me, when these guys wrote letters, they never intended the letters to be read here and there over, you know, a couple of years. If Matthew wrote you a letter, this letter, he would not expect you to read like chapter 2, put it down, and then a month later go back and read chapter 16, put it down, and then, I don't know, six months later read chapter 26 and put it down. He meant to read it through. Now, I know Matthew's long. It's 28 chapters, so it takes a while. So you can definitely read half, though, in one sitting. Even a, th a third, you can do it. You might have to put the smartphone away, but you can do it. Be a smart Bibler, not a smartphone. You can totally do it. And I think for the other letters, too, they, imagine us, we see, a, say, like Ephesians, six chapters long. Like, woof, I read, I read Ephesians 1 today. Man, you know, like, come on, we can read the whole letter. It was meant to be read in one sitting, like if anybody sent you a letter. Anyway, that's my plug for reading. Okay. So how about some parallel points here? Let's see if we can't just support this a little bit. 
uh, A and A prime. So uh, the first and the last. That's appropriate for God, isn't it? In the first and last sections, there's a Jewish ruler who wants to kill Jesus. Right? Think about it. You got Herod in the beginning who wants to kill him, and you got Pilate in the end who wants to kill him. They're both Gentiles. In both cases, these Gentile rulers are told this is the king of the Jews. Herod is told this is the king of the Jews. He wants to kill him. Pilate is said right front, he's told, and he says, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, You answered right, I am a king. So in both cases, the one who tried to kill him is told he's the king of the Jews. In both sections, Jewish rulers assisted by the Gentile ruler do not believe in Jesus. In the beginning, the Jewish rulers don't believe in him. And in the end, the Jewish rulers don't believe in him. In the first section, Jesus escapes to Egypt. And he is not executed. Then we say, well, wait a minute. In the last section, he is executed. That ain't parallel. But he escapes the grave. He's resurrected. So, yeah, so see, not every line, we're not saying here that every line is parallel. Um, Matthew's the only one who includes Herod wanting, killing, actually killing all the male children under two years old. He's the only one who does that. Now, if Matthew set out to, draw, to write a chiasm, you could see why he would include it. The other gospel writers don't. Because he's drawing a parallel between the seeking out the death of the Messiah here and the actual death of the Messiah here and the escape of both. And to the Jewish mind, a Gentile... Say, so he's writing this to Jews. And you say, you remember that a Gentile king tried to kill and did kill Jewish children. Doesn't that play in your heartstrings? Of course it would. And you know what this also means? <clears throat> that Matthew didn't get a piece of paper and a pen. A ballpoint pen. He didn't have those. And sit down in front of a piece of paper and just kind of like pass out. And then wake up and see a stack of papers that was the Gospel of Matthew. The reason why I say that is because inspiration to the Gospel writers does not mean no planning. If this is true, and it, I, I'm fully convinced that it is, that this has to be planned. And Matthew doesn't come to the end and go, huh, I wrote a chiasm. Look at that. He doesn't do that. This is planned. But it's planned and inspired. So think about it, folks. When you live your life inspired by the Holy Spirit, you have to use this. You have to plan. You have to strive. You have to be diligent. You have to reach ahead. You have to be smart. You have to learn wisdom from the wisdom literature and apply it. You don't just let go and let God. God gave us brains for a reason. And what an exciting life we have. It's an amazing life. All right. Now, that's the parallels briefly between A and A prime. Now, right around the center, we have... Oh, that's not it. We have what? The rejection of the king. 
Is Matthew's gospel chronological? Nope. Some, sometimes it is, sometimes it ain't. Why is that? He's building something. Right around the center is the rejection of the king. In the first, the first part, the one before it, chapters 11 and 12, Jesus is preaching to the crowd and his mother and brothers show up outside and someone comes in and Aaron comes in uh, and, and says, your mother and brother are outside, they want to talk to you. What does Jesus say to that guy? Exactly, very well, very well done. He says, now in a Jewish, at that time in the first century, in amongst Jewish people, if you blew off your mother for strangers, that was very wrong. But Jesus breaks with tradition. And he says, who is my mother and my brothers? Who are they? And he says, it's you who what? Are Jews? He didn't say that. He said, it's you who keep the Word of God. And that means they could be Gentiles. They could be anybody. And I'm sure there's Gentiles in that crowd. By that time in his ministry, there's a huge Gentile following. Not huge, but big enough. It's you who keep my word. And then, on E prime, 14 through 17, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown. And in Nazareth, he is rejected. He rejects his family in favor of those who keep the word of God and his own hometown, i.e. his family. They both represent Israel. His mother and his brothers represent Israel. Nazareth represents Israel. He's rejected by Nazareth. He himself rejects his mother and brothers in favor of those who keep his word, which later on they will keep his word. And in the middle of that are the parables of Matthew 13. Not only that. You say, Joe, is there more? Thank you for asking. Yes. John is imprisoned in chapter 11, executed in 14. Again, these are E and E prime on either side of the center. The start chapter 12 starts with the grain thing where the disciples are picking heads of grain and eating them. They're doing this on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are like, what are they breaking the Sabbath? In chapter 15, they're caught eating. Same thing, they're eating, but now they're not washing their hands according to the ritual. Uh, And Jesus refutes both. What is he refuting? Sabbath tradition, hand-washing tradition added to the law, which represents the legalism that Israel had fallen into. He rejects that. And because of their legalism, they rejected him. In both cases, he heals many. In both cases, he gives the sign of Jonah. Chapter 12 and chapter 16. He says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And he speaks about his resurrection. And as I just said, he's rejected by, uh, he rejects his own family in 12. He's rejected by Nazareth in chapter 13. Pretty cool, isn't it? And that leads us to the middle. All right, so all of these, these two ends of the chiasm all build to the center, and the center is. Yeah, there's a kingdom, but you rejected the king, so the kingdom is postponed. Well, if it's postponed, then what? What happened in now? 
And therein lies the parables. Parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, uh, the leaven in, in the bread. Watch, I'm a, of course, I'm going to miss one. But <clears throat> how many parables are there in Matthew 7, 13? Seven. Odd. And sure enough, as I'm researching this, they're like, oh, by the way, Matthew 13 is a chiasm. Like if you look at the, parale- the, the parables parallel to a center. <laughs> I'm like, come on, really? Are people just seeing chiasms everywhere or is this legit? You know? And you've got you've to ask that question and make sure you investigate that. But it seems like it is as I read through it. I'm like, wow. You know, everything here is God. Like we opened up with beautiful buildings that have a symmetry, that have a middle, that are drawing your attention. But the middle's not the only thing you're looking at. But that's where God wants your eyes, yeah? So that when you look at the other parts, you're not led astray from the real meaning of the parts because the parts support the whole. The whole is in the middle. So as we'll see, Matthew's going to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. I know that you and I already know that, but our worship of Him as King and Messiah in our everyday lives is going to increase. That's what's going to happen from this. Also, the joy, the ability of our lives, and the ability to live properly according to the will of God in the midst of opposition and trial and things going crazy wrong are going to increase because of this gospel. we are not in the kingdom. So when we say, well, God, why don't this work out? Why don't that work out? Why was that so hard? Why is this so hard? Why won't that person do what I want them to do? You know, as we were just talking about earlier, what is wrong with people? I'll tell you what's wrong with people. Well, he will. They don't know the king. They don't know the kingdom. They just don't know. They could be Christians and not know. So therefore, yeah. But if you and I are an heir to the king, where are we to keep our eyes? And Hebrews 12, keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That word author means king. He's the prince. Keep your eyes on him. He is the central. Matthew's going to point our eyes right to him. Matthew's not all concerned about what Jesus did on this day and that day. He's concerned about the things that he has plucked out of the life. He's an eyewitness, by the way. He's one of the disciples. This is the uh, not the guy in the chosen necessarily who has that uh, kind of that autistic personality. Although I love that character, but um, you know, it's this is Matthew is an eyewitness of all of these things, and he's not giving us everything that he's seen. He's giving us the things that he's seen that support his purpose. And once we see that, we're off to the races. So Matthew is going to present God's kingdom to us in three aspects. First, the earthly kingdom that was offered to Israel, and they said no. That's the first coming. The, secondly, he's going to present to us the kingdom that the kingdom was postponed because Israel rejected him. And that's the age that we live in now. The postponed kingdom will be established literally on earth when Christ returns. And that thirdly, Christ is now building his church. 
composed of believers in this age, all of whom are heirs of the kingdom, Jew and Gentile alike. So, as we close, if you learn this gospel, you will learn the incredible life of an heir of the kingdom of heaven in a world where the kingdom has been postponed. I just, we just finished reading uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. to Mag- I've been reading it to Maggie. We even got through the, the horrific killing of Aslan. Not to ruin it for you if you haven't read it. but <laughs> At six, we got to the end. And, you know, as Aslan dies so that Edmund uh, could live. And I'm like, why did Edmund live, Maggie? And she's like, she didn't really get it. And then we talked about it some more. And then, and then, you know, and as I was preparing this, I'm like, you know, as C.S. Lewis writes this allegory, before the four children become kings and queens in Narnia, they have to fight for it. All right? And, and C.S. Lewis knows this, and that's why he's presenting it this way. There's a fight that has to happen. And the fight happens here with us in our hearts that we have to fight for who we are, not fight in the worldly realm. But as Paul said, fight the good fight of faith because there's many things, flesh included, that are going to rob us of this life that is the life of an heir to the kingdom. Your princes and princesses of the kingdom. And we must live accordingly despite all the things and deceptions that are going to try and stop us. And we've got, we've got to be, you know, planning, putting our heart and soul into it, learning. We have to learn this. And when we do, this will become a reality. This life in this postponed kingdom world is full of trial and tribulation and sorrow. We're not to, God didn't tell us to have big smiles on our faces all the time. There's going to be sorrow. There's also joy. There's also overcoming. There's conquering. And I think all the way through, amazing discovery of your king and his kingdom. And all through it, if you keep your eyes on the king, you will increase and progress in being like him. Because he left his kingdom of heaven for a while. And he has walked the path for us and gave us the very same path. Think what a privilege that is. The creator of the universe became a man, walked a path here on earth, and said, would you like to walk the same path that I walked? Like, can I? <laughs> That's what, you know, what we think of. And he is, yes. He's given us his spirit. He gave us his word. He gave us everything. He gave us himself and now indwells our body. We are heirs of the kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for this gospel. Thank you for showing us and revealing to us the structure of things that we may keep our eyes focused, focused on the program, focused on the king. We're so grateful for him, how he sacrificed himself, how he became separate from you, forsaken by you to die for our sins. None of us can imagine the pain that he went through so that we could live. And yet he did so. He escaped death 
Not by not going through it or avoiding it, but by being resurrected because He justified us. And so we're so grateful, Father, for all that You have done. Anyone listening to my voice who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, if you have just heard that, that is the truth of the Gospel. The Gospel is a good news that come into the world that God the Son has come to be a man. He did become a man. And almost 2,000 years ago, he died in a cross for the sins of the world, all the sins of the world, and that includes yours. Therefore, through his life and sacrifice, he has given you eternal life if you will accept it. You have to accept it, though. Life and love cannot be had without decision, without choice. And you must choose to believe in Christ as your Savior. That's what God gave as a condition to salvation and eternal life, to believe in Christ, not to do work, but to believe in him, accept him as your Savior, and you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we'll take our offering, and that's it. I'll pray for our offering. Our Father, thank you for the uh, opportunity to give. As your believer priests, we give in honor of you and in worship of you. We ask, Father, that you bless the finances that come to us so that we may continue to um, project your word throughout the world. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Ready, Alan? Queued up. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you.